Well, Brent, we're in a uh, new location recording the studio. Coming live from the apprentice office. Mm-hmm. There was some construction on the roof, so we had to uh, switch rooms. You know, I've al- actually I've also noticed this. A couple things about the editing pod, uh, part. One, last week we had like these weird static sounds that I couldn't take out. So if that happens again, listeners, I'm really sorry. I don't know, I don't know what was going on there. Might be because we have this like bootleg system. I don't even know how well it works. The other thing I noticed is that my voice cracks a lot. Oh yeah. Well, you're still <laughs> still a young still man. Still what? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Actually, why is this? Hopefully, it's not uh, too loud. It kind of looks like it might be. Well, you just kind of had this exclamation of laughter. So yeah, maybe. that's true. That's true. Maybe we'll just. Uh, Keep it down. Okay. Shout out. Uh, I just got off the phone with uh, Lydia Miller, so Nashville, Tennessee. She, she wow. need, need to shout out listening to the podcast. That's a big deal. Right, Lydia, we're glad you're listening. That's right. Piece S- by piece. So week 11, here we are. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. It's uh, oh, That's another thing that drives me crazy about my voice when I have to edit this is I make this noise a lot <laughs> in between. It's so loud. Listeners, I'm so sorry. So, First Samuel, chapters eight through thirty-one in week eleven. Last week we saw that there were three different books. We were in three different books of the Bible. We were finishing up the book of uh, Judges, Ruth, and then we were in First Samuel as well. So in Judges we kind of saw that cycle of obedience uh, and peace, but then disobedience and oppression from outside rulers, and then repentance and then a deliverer comes in mm-hmm. in peace and it kind of just goes back that cycles around and but on, on a whole just gets worse and worse yep there's not a lot of hope going on in israel it seems to be a book that kind of points out the godlessness of the nation except for one of the redemptive qualities about the book is that is the book of ruth is mm. that we see during the time of the judges during the time of the judges we see a moabite woman who's the hero of the story she's a model believer in Yahweh, even though she's not from the nation of Israel, it kind of foreshadows the extension to the rest of the nations eventually being uh, folded into the people of God. And she marries Boaz, who is Rahab's son. So she ends up, she comes from, a, joins a family of... Uh, you have that memorized, right? That whole lineage. That whole lineage. genealogy. Let's go for it. Yeah. It uh, starts with Adam. And <laughs> so... Then we got introduced to kind of the time of 1 Samuel. We see Samuel's the first prophet, really, that's introduced in Scripture. And he is, uh, you know, he's convicting Israel of some of their disobedience in the world. We see Eli, who's a priest. He's got, it says, worthless sons that Mm -hmm. are taking advantage Mm -hmm. of worshipers of God. Yeah, which is a, you know, really quick interruption there. We've seen that now we've got the role of prophet that's there that's you know communicating the words of god we've got the role of priest which is like the mediatorial mediatorial role between god and his people and now we've got this role of king um ruling reigning you know um ideally uh in god's um you know bringing god's law and establishing God's ways. So prophet, priest, king, and just kind of way big foreshadow, you know, Jesus really embodies all of those mm-hmm. prophet, priest, king. And although the words aren't there necessarily, you know, we see that 
embodied in the Garden of Eden as well. Mm. In some ways, Adam is kind of a prototype, so mm. to speak, of of those roles. Yeah, he's supposed to have dominion over the earth, and is supposed to be, you know, speaking with God. Speaking with God. That's exactly right. And is in the presence of God as yeah. well as a priest. Yeah. You know, so this upcoming week we're going to finish the book of Second or First Samuel. Forgive me. And I forgive you. Thanks, that's, man. That's, right. that's clutch. Do you just want to pray, and we'll be done. <laughs> um, so. The appointment of King Saul is, we, we see, is kind of foreshadowed at the end of last week in 1 Samuel 8. And so this week is really journeying the life of uh, King Saul and the life of Israel, uh, in, in Israel mm-hmm. as, the, as the first king. And so, you know, we've talked about how important it is to read the historical books with the Torah in mind, mm-hmm. Genesis through Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. As we're kind of entering into this era of kings, what should readers have in mind from Genesis to Deuteronomy as these kings are kind of getting installed? Well, there's sometimes you look and see and think, well, like these kings are bad. And if they would have just avoided this altogether, then none of this would have happened. But there is that scripture like there was that wrong motivation of why Israel wanted a king. Their motivation was, we want a king so that we can be like the other nations, that, so that there's a figure that we can look to and be like, yeah, he's our king, you know. So their motivation was wrong. But the the role of king was not wrong. So we even saw that back in, back in Deuteronomy, that uh, if there was a, a king that was representing God's ways and God's rule and God's authority over uh, the people, then that that actually would be a good thing. Um, so there's there's some connection, and obviously, um, what we're going to see, well, we're going to see most of the kings are bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's that's right. And tying that together with some of the big picture themes, you know, of God's presence, mm-hmm. for example, in Israel, we we know that He dwells in the tabernacle, but uh, we see, we saw last week in First Samuel eight that to put a king over Israel that is godless, that's not a, a godly uh, leader, it actually will hinder the relationship Israel has with Yahweh. It, it even says in verse eighteen, "In the day that you will cry out because of your king, mm-hmm. how evil he is, yep. whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you." Right, right. And I do think it, it is important as we think about this whole notion of king that. There is some discontinuity between Old Testament, New Testament here. So Old Testament people of God were a national people. So they were the nation of Israel. Now, obviously, not all of national Israel were worshipers of Yahweh. Like, we'll see that for sure. But there were there were people that were worshipers of Yahweh within Israel. But God was working within them as a nation, we don't have that in the New Testament. This is a, in the New Testament. The church is not a national movement. It is a multi-ethnic people that's bound together under allegiance to King Jesus. So there isn't this. Sometimes we can dangerously read like kingly passages or even um, aspects of these historical books in the Old Testament and project them onto our experience, mm. even our own political experience, you know, in in our own, you know, world. And we have to see the discontinuity there. Mm-hmm. 
to really be able to avoid some errors. Which goes to show how powerful it is, how powerful the gospel is, that our citizenship, even though I have been born and raised in Columbus, Ohio my whole life, my ultimate citizenship and prior, you know, primary citizenship lies in heaven and is not one of Ohio or America. And we have more in common with our international brothers and sisters in Christ that have never visited the Mm -hmm. land that we live in Mm -hmm. than we do with our own fellow Americans that are unbelievers that don't know the Lord. So there's there's a lot of interesting reflections and obviously that'll flush out more as we go through, Mm through the Old Testament and then obviously into the New. Now, what's interesting is that the lineage of the Messiah We've been tracing through, it's like we use that illustration of the game of guess who, you know, it's... What a great illustration you that, had there. Thanks, yeah, man. That's amazing. Thanks. That that means a lot. <laughs> but uh, the, you know, the, the potential messiahs that we see presented, these leaders that show up show obvious character flaws or they show uh, even a... Um, even an ancestry flaw, not a flaw, but an ancestry difference that would kind of disqualify them from being possibly the Messiah we see in Genesis 3. But as we're getting into a king, I mean, we're, we're looking for uh, a, a Messiah-like figure because Genesis 49 says, the scepter shall not rule from, uh, depart from Judah. So a, a king from Judah is who mm-hmm. we're looking for mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. So this week, as, as readers will see, uh, Saul is... Uh, appointed as the first king of Israel, but is from the tribe of Benjamin. Yep. But it shouldn't surprise us that the second king that people will end up seeing, the second anointed king of Israel, mm-hmm. is David, mm-hmm. who comes from the line of Judah. Mm-hmm. So it it's a pretty remarkable moment in Scripture where it kind of seems like there's some clarifying of who the Messiah is is or at least is going to look like it's a pretty close similar description and so next week when we read second samuel there's some significant prophecies about that king uh that we'll get into uh then but i want to spend some time talking about david Hmm. um you know it says that he's got beautiful eyes and he's ruddy in appearance sounds like pastor steve you know (laughs) i'm just kidding uh hopefully he's not listening because that would just yeah boost his ego too much that's right speaking of boosting ego how about David and Goliath? Hmm. This is like maybe the most, uh, one of the more well-known passages in the Old Testament. Or at least stories. Yeah, at least at least stories. And I love, uh, we actually were talking about this at a, a, uh, a Bible study earlier this morning. In 1 Samuel, later on, we see that David comes up to this uh, Goliath-like figure. Or Goliath, who is a giant. Mm-hmm. And uh as, as many people know, he ends up uh, defeating through uh, slinging a stone into the temple of the giant. But what I love about it is why David goes in the first place. Mm. And it says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Mm-hmm. Like, like da- David's heart has a divine calibration, so mm. to speak, that he, at least initially, is acting in, in, a, in a way against injustices against Yahweh, mm-hmm. the God that he loves. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty remarkable. It's not just like he likes to fight or he lost a bet. He's He sees this as an, you know a grievance against Yahweh. Yeah, and is emboldened by it. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's, I mean, I think that it's, David and Goliath obviously has, has become pretty much idiomatic in American life or culture to 
basically be a good Cinderella story. You know, yeah. who's the underdog that's going to take down? The, I mean, I think my favorite movie, Hoosiers. <laughs> before the big game, you know, before the, the tiny little school, farm school beats the big Indianapolis yeah. school, they bring in the chaplet, and I think he was talking about David and Goliath. That, you know, um, it's, it's a, you know. Dude, have you, uh, back when the Buckeyes were playing in like the early 2000s, I think this is like the Mike Conley, Greg oh, Oden era. Yeah. And they were playing Georgetown, and Roy Hibbert played for Georgetown oh, yeah. that year. And an interviewer said, you know, what do you think about Ohio State? Because Ohio State was number one, they were money. And, and, and Roy, Roy Hibbert misunderstood the story. And in his quote, he said, man, we're, we're going to totally defeat, we're going to absolutely defeat uh, Ohio State. Uh, they're David and we're Goliath. Uh, it's like, well, and the Buckeyes ended up beating Georgetown. Actually, the other way around. It's like, yeah. he, he was he was a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> That's right. Roy Hibbert, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on sometime. <laughs> I'm sure you are somewhere yes, in the world. You have to be. But yeah, it's a good, uh, it, it, The there's really a lot of gospel motif there in terms of this is clearly God doing the impossible. It's not based on David's strength, size, you status, know, status, uh, weaponry. This is God acting graciously, defending his character, um, working through an unlikely, you know, person. And so, yeah. And, and, and honestly, like the one piece I think that oftentimes the children's Bible stories don't see is, I mean, David chops his head off. Goliaths. Yeah. Yeah. At the end. And basically flaunts it as a trophy. Yeah. He kind of goes from city to city and is like, wh- here we are saying, you know, David's the man. Yeah. But David seems to know it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and I think it's also just like this, you know, standing up against God in that way is serious business. Like for Goliath, like if you're going to say those things, they're, you know, there's consequences to that. Yeah, totally. You, you uh, mentioned the unlikeliness of a lowly shepherd boy mm-hmm. being this later anointed king over Israel mm-hmm. from the tribe of Judah. First Samuel sixteen seven says, Do not look on the appearance on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Uh, this is referring back to Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Mm-hmm. It's a deep reflection for our own life. Totally. Thinking of any inadequacies that might be tempting us to disbelieve that God could use us. Well, and even who do you look to as like leadership quality? Mm-hmm. You know, is it always the most impressive looking person? Or is it always popular. the most popular? Is it always the most, uh, from a worldly perspective, successful? Like, obviously, you know, many godly people have been very successful, but, you know, some of the people that. Uh, I think the Lord has used the most, the world would look at and say, you know, who, who are they? But then that was Jesus too. Like Isaiah <laughs> yes. says, he had no, like nobody would have looked at him and thought, oh, there's a cool guy. Mm-hmm. You know, there was nothing about his physical appearance that would have been, people would have esteemed. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, it's, it's encouraging to see some of this foreshadowings of its application or, further development in when Jesus arrives on the scene. You know, there most of 1 Samuel is really about this 
uh, I don't know if rivalry is the right word, but basically Saul sees and mm. Israel basically kind of they fall in love with David as a leader. They mm-hmm. they even at one point said that they're singing a song. You know, that Saul has slain his Can enemies by the just thousands. Just sing it. Saul <laughs> has slain. Uh, but Saul has slain his enemies by the thousands and David his ten thousands. Yeah. yeah. I backed away from the mic there. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. And uh, so the the nation basically starts looking at David as this leader that they want over their life because of this defeat, Saul ends up getting jealous and ends up trying to kill David, yep. you know, multiple times. Yeah. Like, and despite him saying, promising to his son, Jonathan, I, I will not kill him. He yep. will not be put to death. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, it shows how ugly jealousy is. And again, I think there's some reflection on our own life that we can do there of like, when we look at other people and say, well, how come people are, you know, want to hang out with them and not me or how come their life looks this way or whatever. So yeah, there's a pretty intense um, picture of the ugliness of jealousy there. The flip side of that is to watch David's like this conviction of Saul is the Lord's anointed Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to mess with him even though he has multiple opportunities. And then even sometimes when he doesn't take those opportunities, his conscience still bothers him because he like almost does like cuts off the robe, you know, the corner of his robe or whatever. And yeah, while they're in the cave. So David, like from a, while Saul's trying to kill him, which, you know, even as you read this, like a lot of people around David are like, well, why would, you know, God's brought him into your hands. Like, why don't you take him out right now? And he won't do it because he has such a reverence for the, the sovereignty of God. It's like, well, he's the Lord's anointed for right now. Mm-hmm. You know, even knowing eventually he's going to be king because he's been anointed, but he he won't do it. Yeah. And again, like how many times in our life would we say, well, we're justified in this action? Yeah. Um, or. Yeah, just just saying, well, this is clearly wrong. So that means I can do something that may actually be wrong. as yeah. well. And that point right there, actually, I mean, Saul we we see kind of the, the their character is contrasted their thinking is contrasted of uh, what am i allowed to do based upon my own desires and it's interesting to note that david you know his conscience is bound by the word of god mm-hmm. and the instruction that has been given to him and it seems that saul continually is not mm-hmm. so for example you know later there's a i actually didn't write down what chapter it is but there's a, a passage where uh, it's in First Samuel 15, where Saul is supposed to be driving out the Amalekites, mm-hmm. and he's supposed to completely get rid of them altogether and everything that they own. And mm-hmm. of, of it, it's amazing. Saul actually sees some of their resources. He sees their sheep and their oxen and other things for sacrifices, and instead of you know, devoting those to destruction, he says, we should hold on to these to give mm-hmm. it to, uh, mm-hmm. to give it to the Lord. And mm-hmm. so he basically interprets this opportunity to bend God's word, mm-hmm. uh, because he thinks that almost as if he knows better than what Yahweh prefers in the way that he is worshiped. Yeah. But it's, you know, there's some sympathy that we can have there too, because it's not like he's saying, I want to take this stuff to totally. like, you know, 
you know, build my war chest. Mm-hmm. He, he's he's justifying it by saying we could sacrifice this to the Lord, which then you get this classic. This is repeated, you know, in other places in Scripture, certainly in the Psalms. Um, but where Samuel says, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice." Mm-hmm. You know, like. God doesn't need, like, he needs our hearts. He doesn't need our stuff. Mm -hmm. And if he gets our hearts, he gets our stuff. Yeah. Right. And we think of Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. They are offering up something to the Lord. I mean, like, it's some sort of devotion, Mm -hmm. but it's not in prescription with Mm -hmm. what God says. And later we'll see it with, uh, is it Uzzah? Is that how you say his name? Yeah, Uzzah. Uzzah in, in 2 Samuel. Yeah. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, before we go to questions, anything else from First Samuel to keep in mind about the character of David? Might might even be reflections or applications of your own life as you've been reading through this. David and Jonathan. We didn't even talk about Jonathan. Yeah, at all. that's yeah. David and Jonathan. There, that that friendship is really a model friendship, uh, really from Jonathan's side. Yeah, because he he was the one that should have been the king, and Saul actually keeps saying that to him, like, dude, you know, you're the next in line. <laughs> And you're wanting to support this guy. Yeah. And so there's definitely a model of like spiritual friendship there. Um, uh, yeah. That I mean, that's, that's even, huge. Even just humility of just celebrating other people. Yes. Just happy that the Lord is yes. using. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of applications there. Instead of us having rivaling hearts that are competitive with our brothers and sisters in Christ, even other churches. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. do... Uh, I, had a, I had a friend, you know, once challenge, uh, challenge me by, by asking the question, would you still rejoice if the Lord answered your prayers for revival at the church down the road? Mm. And it's like, yo, yeah, I don't know if I would rejoice. Mm-hmm. And that's a real heart check that Jonathan models for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what does it look like to be kind of a brandless, uh, a brandless believer and worshiper of the Lord? Mm-hmm. Anything else from First Samuel? No, I think that's, I mean, you just see, like, again, there's this, like, for David, there's this commitment to the sovereignty of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's a huge uh, encouragement, challenge, convicting aspect. And But, you know, David's going to have his own challenges here coming up. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll get into that uh, next week, Lord willing. You know what time it is. Question time. first one is this may be the most perceptive question we've had team rev is there a cookbook in the church bookstore featuring the recipes mentioned on your podcast sincerely your hungry listener (laughs) hello hungry (laughs) listener (laughs) that is so good i mean you know there has to uh, back in the day there definitely had to have been a clintonville linworth cookbook but i mean we really need to take this to the bookstall committee. Yeah. You can write an email, hungry listener, to bookstall at linworthbaptist.org. I believe the committee's on recess right now, so they <laughs> haven't been meeting in some time. But if you you can make suggestions or ask questions, and they'll uh, get back to you at some point. Um, it's definitely something that needs to happen. I mean, th- I mean, I'm just trying to think what else would be on there. Ida Basie Pizza. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we got Jan Thomas Meatloaf. Yeah. I mean, th- there's all sorts of gems. Oh, there is. All right, we will we will work on that. Getting on the bookstall ASAP. Okay, question two. Hello, 
in Exodus 20, Moses is on the foot of the Mount of Mount Sinai, and God speaks out what we know as the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc. The Bible never uses the phrase or references this set of instructions as the Ten Commandments. Fast forward later to Exodus 34. This is after Israel has disobeyed God by worshiping the golden calf. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, and God says that he's making a, a renewal of the covenant with Moses and proceeds to give Moses ten commands, such as be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, six days you shall labor, on the seventh day you shall rest, etc. And then after the set of instructions, God says, write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he wrote on the tablet the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It seems to me that reading from the Bible uh, gives the label the Ten Commandments to the second set of instructions from Exodus 34, as opposed to the classic set understood in Exodus 20. So my question is, why? Which set of instructions from God is the Ten Commandments? Great question. That's pretty legit. Yeah. Very perceptive. So I... At, when I was looking through this, I think uh, th- it is a it is an excellent observation to note the Ten Commandments. That phrase, well, one, that's not the, probably the best even translation mm. from Hebrew. Uh, from Hebrew, mm. what, what's the word? Debar. The ten words. The ten words is probably a more accurate translation of of that. But what happens is is that even in Exodus thirty four, where the word the phrase Ten Commandments or Ten Words is used. In verse 1, it reads, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So it even seems before the, the phrase Ten Commandments is even written, it seems like the second tablets, the second set of tablets, are supposed to be mere copies, mm-hmm. identical, mm-hmm. with the same words uh, as the first. And... Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 actually refers, is recounting the first time on Mount Sinai. And the first time he's on Mount Sinai, he says, he calls them the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. you know, even though the first time. So it seems that uh, although the, the phrase, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words is not used in Exodus 20 because of what we see in Exodus 34 verse 1 and later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, as well, it seems that it is the exact same set yeah, representing of that Exodus twenty. Yeah, yeah. that the, the whole reason they're having a second set of tablets in the first place is to replace the ones that we um, because of the idolatry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, we have a couple other questions that are in the queue that we're not going to answer today because I need to do some research. Okay. So that's it, man. You uh, you want to pray for us? Absolutely. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to think through this portion of your word. Thank you for uh, who you are revealed here. I pray that you would give us this deep sense of your sovereignty and have a passion for your name and for your glory, Lord, that we would be emboldened uh, to uh, live for you, uh, live and love each other the way Jonathan did with David and um, just have a passion for your holiness and um, for your world. So help us towards that end this week in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, man. No, thank you.